Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, stories about people who've spent time in California prisons. We meet a man who says he's lost more than his freedom in prison. He's lost his language. And we hear from a former inmate who, after serving 27 years, is getting used to life on the outside. And I can just feel the oxygen, you know what I mean, as I'm breathing. I can just feel it, the difference. Plus, we talk to author Rachel Kushner about how her new novel is based on friendships with women serving time in the Central Valley. A lot of the women in Chowchilla do not have supportive families or supportive anybody on the outside. There are certain people who call me who don't have anyone else that they can call. I'm Sasha Koka, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're going to start with a story about a man in San Quentin Prison in Marin County. He's serving 40 years to life for second-degree murder. Being locked up is one kind of punishment, but he's also experiencing another. He's forgetting how to speak the language he learned as a child. Imagine if you forgot the language that gave you an identity, the language that says, hey, you belong here, you're one of us. How would that impact your sense of self? Tên của tôi là David Bermley. Um, năm nay tôi 33 tuổi. Tôi ở trong tù cũng hơn 10 năm rồi. My name is David Lay. I'm 33 years old and I've been incarcerated for about over 10 years. My ethnic background is Vietnamese American. Vietnamese as a language um, is part of who I am. And um, I can't, I can't take away or do without it, you know, because I'll be losing a piece of myself. My language ties into my culture and my identity in a way where, if you look at me, right, I, I look Asian, Vietnamese. I don't remember speaking Vietnamese as well was when I was, I think I was in in middle school, starting middle school at that time. I met um, some of my Vietnamese peers, and um, to me, like they seem to me, they speak Vietnamese very fluently. And I try to converse with them in Vietnamese, but I find it very difficult. I can't like find the word to express myself, but I can do it in English. And so I kind of question myself, like, why is it so difficult for me to speak in Vietnamese when, like, I speak it at home? Being incarcerated with the progression of losing like um, my Vietnamese language is like um, there's not a lot of 
compared to other races in prison, there's not a lot of Vietnamese. It's like less than 1% compared to the, the whole general population. And so it's like, like everywhere you go, there's some other um, ethnicity or some other race that's not Vietnamese. So it's kind of hard to find, <laughs> find like my peers, like my Vietnamese peers, just to actually just try to communicate and just talk about things in uh, Vietnamese. So it's very difficult. And if I don't find anybody to talk to, um, I'll slowly lose it. Vietnamese as a language means me. Um, it's part of who I am. I can't take away or do without it, you know, because I'll be losing a piece of myself. I like to say like programs that like allow us to learn about uh, our culture and not just the Vietnamese culture, but all culture. Those programs are rich for our own personal development. And without those programs, I mean, I think we're losing a part of ourselves. In a sense, we're losing history. That interview with David Lay was produced by San Quentin Radio, a project of KALW, working to support inmates telling stories from inside prison. David was interviewed by Anutin Choi Pangtong, a former prisoner who worked with San Quentin Radio while he was still incarcerated. San Quentin officials listened to and approved the script and audio for this story before broadcast. And now to something that would probably not be approved by prison officials, a new novel out about life for women inmates. It's set in a fictional California prison based largely on the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla in the Central Valley. The novel's an intense exploration of conditions for women serving life sentences. It's called The Mars Room, and it's just out from Los Angeles-based author Rachel Kushner, who's a National Book Award finalist. So, Rachel, tell me a little bit about your central character in this book. Her name is Romy. Who is she? Well, she's a young woman who grew up in San Francisco, um, ended up working at the Mars Room, which is a lap dancing joint on Market Street. Fictional, obviously. Um, And she commits a crime that results in a conviction of two life sentences plus an enhancement of six years. And she ends up going to serve out that incredibly long, unservable sentence at a prison called Stanville in the Central Valley. You know, in some ways, to me, this is a novel about three Californias. You've got San Francisco, which is where your main character, Romy, grew up. You've got L.A., where she moves to and commits her crime, and then the Central Valley, where she goes to prison. For you, how much is California a character in this book? I'm not sure about the state as a character, maybe because... um, I've never really understood what that meant, even though I have been guilty of saying that myself. I've said it. Um, but I know that the book is about California in some respect. Like when people call it a prison novel, I tend to disagree only because for me it encompasses much more. I feel like I wanted to write a novel that was um, my take on contemporary times and also really reckon with the idea of being a Californian. It's really about the complexity of the state for me and about these stories that have to do with the state, even if part of it is a focus on a layer of the population that can be somewhat forgotten. 
But it was really about thinking of the state and even the geography, just a long stretch between L.A. and San Francisco and what's there in the Central Valley. And so for me, it is a kind of love letter to California. So you grew up in the inner sunset of San Francisco in the 80s, basically, late 70s, 80s, which was before the tech boom, before all the gentrification, before the ways that San Francisco has changed so much. Could you read us a passage about what that part of San Francisco was like when you and your character Romy were growing up. Sure. On 10th Avenue at Moraga, where I had lived with my mother when I was a kid, you could see Golden Gate Park, then the Presidio, the matte red points of the Golden Gate Bridge, and behind it, the steep green crinkled folds of the Marin Headlands. I knew that for everyone else in the world, the Golden Gate Bridge was considered something special, but to me and my friends, it was nothing. We just wanted to get wasted. The city to us was clammy fingers of fog working their way into our clothes, always those clammy fingers, and big bluffs of wet mist hurling themselves down Judas Street while I waited by sandy streetcar tracks for the end, which ran once an hour late night waited and waited, with mud caked on the hems of my jeans, mud from the puddles in the parking lot of Ocean Beach, or mud from climbing Acid Mountain on acid, which was what Acid Mountain was for. The bad feeling of extra weight tugging me downward from the mud caked on my jean hems, the bad feeling from doing cocaine with strangers in a motel in Colma by the cemetery. The city was wet feet and soggy cigarettes at a rainy kegger in the grove. The rain and beer and bloody fights on St. Patrick's Day, being sick from Bacardi 151 and splitting my chin open on a concrete barrier in Mini Park, someone overdosing in a bedroom in the White People Projects on the Great Highway, someone holding a loaded gun to my head for no reason in Big Rack, where people play baseball in the park. It was night, and this psycho attached himself to us while we were sitting and drinking our forties, a situation so typical, even if it never happened again, that I don't recall how it resolved itself. San Francisco to me was the McGoldricks and the McKittricks and the Boyles and the O'Boyles and the Hicks and the Hickeys and their Erringo bra tattoos, the fights they started and won. So that was a San Francisco that was working class, was... Irish, sounds like. Oh, yeah. In many Very ways. Very much so. So how did that environment shape Romy? I know it's drawn on, on your own experience as a young person, but how did it shape her and her life, your character Romy? Yeah, it's, that's a, I never really thought about it like that, like how the environment shaped her. I saw her as sort of um, of the environment, like it's germane to her and she's germane to it. She is a sunset girl who is raised there and goes to public schools, which I went to public schools and so did all of my friends. And I wasn't aware that there was this other San Francisco happening right alongside, but not at all contiguous with our San Francisco. You know, never the twain shall meet. I didn't know any people who went to private schools until I went to college. So the way I see her, she proceeded within the parameters as they were given. And the book is intended to be full of humor and life, and hopefully it is, but the sunset that she grew up in is was a kind of tough place in a way. There was a lot of violence, um, just the kind of a certain type of culture. 
which is not at all to denigrate, you know, Irish sunset San Francisco. I'm actually quite nostalgic for it in a way, but it had an intensity that may have been somewhat unique. You have been spending time with women prisoners in Chowchilla in the Central Valley. Um, I, I believe it's the biggest women's prison in the world. It is. Uh, what drew you to working with women prisoners, to starting to visit them? Well, I, I have always felt uncomfortable with the concept of a life sentence. So maybe I would start with that. I mean, I think it was a few different reasons. I had a friend from high school, not a woman, but a man who ended up going to prison. Um, and I think that that what happened to him really sort of haunted me. And I've known other people who've kind of had long-term interactions with the criminal justice system. And this idea of the life sentence, I find somewhat monstrous, partly for how arbitrary it is. Like, it doesn't matter how, how long the segment of your life ends up being, but that's the unit that you need to utilize to pay back the state for whatever kind of harm uh, you've been convicted of having committed. And I got involved with an Oakland-based human rights organization called Justice Now, um, whose board is um, in part, if not primarily, made up of people serving life sentences in the women's facilities in California and became good friends with people and started corresponding with them and talking to them on the phone. And, you know, they mentored me um, insofar as they taught me a lot about what their lives were like in prison. A lot of the women in Chowchilla do not have supportive families or supportive anybody on the outside. There are certain people who call me who don't have anyone else that they can call. You've got these really gritty details, you know, about how they communicate through the toilets, the food, um, the way prisoners support each other inside, the lice treatments. So that's all drawn from your conversations about what it's like for women inside Chowchilla? It is. And um, and from people who were formerly incarcerated there who became advisors to me on the book. Um, and, you know, this was like their part time job helping me with details. But um, they have especially one friend, Teresa Martinez, who's the first person I thank in the book, has immense knowledge of Chowchilla. She went there right when it opened. As she puts it, she broke ground on that prison and was there for 23 years. And um, she has this very specific and deep in-depth expertise of that place. And so part of calling all these details from her was like valuing that knowledge and giving it life in the book. And have women who have been in prison read your book? And have you gotten any feedback on that? Everyone's going to have a different perspective on things, you know. But yes, I've only gotten positive feedback. And I've done, um, I read at a California Institution for Women in front of like 60 incarcerated people. And that was the most exciting night of my entire life. Wow. Tell me more about that. It was just like high school at first, just in the way that people throw a ton of attitude and try to intimidate you, you know, but I'm used to that from growing up. And I was like, okay, I'm going to charm these people. I read this part about this guy sort of giving this woman obsessive, unwanted attention because I thought maybe the women would uh, identify with it. And um yeah, they loved it. And they were laughing hard. And I was saying, am I going to get in trouble for this? Because there was a guard standing in the back of the room. And they were like, girl, keep on going. Uh, and then at the end, they asked me um, the most acute questions I've ever gotten. And 
standing there, I felt hyper alert to the way that energy and power was kind of rolling through the room, like who had it and what kind of psychological acuity was focused on me and on other people. And it was all sort of reverberating around the room. And afterward, I came to this conclusion, which is maybe it's a bit reduced, but people in prison have to spend so much time in close quarters and they have no privacy whatsoever. And also they lose what like a sociologist like Irving Goffman would call your identity kit. And so they can't like throw attitude or shade by like the way that they look, their makeup, their whole thing, because all of that is stripped away from them. Everyone's wearing the same clothes. All you really have is your currency is your personality and your ability to perform. And so people are a cut above in terms of their ability to have presence and charisma and to read other people. And being in a room full of individuals like that, it was very clear to me. Rachel Kushner, thank you so much for joining us on the California Report magazine. Thanks very much for having me, Sasha. Rachel Kushner's new book is The Mars Room. California has more inmates serving life sentences than just about any other state in the country. But with efforts to ease overcrowding in California prisons, some of those lifers have been getting out earlier than expected. We're going to introduce you to a man who was released three years ago from Chuckawalla Valley State Prison in the Mojave Desert. He's still trying to adjust to life on the outside. Alexandria Mason brings us this story from Los Angeles as part of our series on whether the California dream is alive for people from different walks of life. For someone who's been locked away for longer than some millennials have been alive, the smallest things are fascinating. A bunch of trees, and I can just feel the oxygen, you know what I mean, as I'm breathing. I can just feel it, the difference, as compared to the damn desert I was living in, you know what I mean? I can smell the roses, I can, but I can smell the gas, I can smell the weed, I can smell everything. After 27 years in prison, Michael Lucas appreciates just being present in the moment. Well, you know how you can tell? The people that have been in prison is they walk around smiling and observant of everything else around them. The people that haven't been in prison, they walk with their head down or in their phone. It's a shame. When Michael went to prison in 1988, there were no smartphones. And there are a lot of other things he's still getting used to. Facebook, texting, and awkward in-person introductions. I'm 49 years old. I was uh, born and raised in Los Angeles. At the age of 20, I went to prison and uh, had uh, an awakening. I was sentenced to 25 to life for first-degree murder. Of course, that's not how he introduces himself. But when he does, he's always nervous about how he'll be perceived when people find out he's been to prison, that they'll reduce him to just that. Before he went to prison, he had lots of dreams. On one hand, he wanted to be a baseball player at USC, playing his favorite sport while getting a college degree. But on the other hand, he looked up to famous gangsters like Bumpy Johnson, a black mob boss in New York. Michael says he came from a loving household, but early on, he started to rebel. When I was about 13, I kind of lived like a double life going to school, you know, and coming home. And then 
I would disappear for a couple days and I'd go to different states, you know what I mean? His first arrest was when he was 14 at a Chuck E. Cheese. He says he and his friends got drunk and stole a bunch of coins they used to play games. Yeah, jail time for Chuck E. Cheese coins. Not even real money. Eventually, he was trafficking drugs between California and New York, making him closer to Bumpy Johnson than USC. Not being able to find a way to guide my rebellion in a positive way, I just took to who was rebellious around me. By 20, he'd be sentenced to 25 years to life for first-degree murder. He shot a man that he recognized from a time he'd been robbed in his neighborhood. A drunken argument between the two escalated into a fatal shooting in West L.A. Michael ended up pulling the trigger, killing the man. It's a Wednesday night, and Michael and some other former prisoners are wrapping up a support group meeting. They're talking about struggling to create healthy relationships after so much time in a prison cell. The stuff that I just went through, right, these people out here expect me to just be over that. You know what I mean? I mean, it's 27 years that I live like that. Michael says transforming himself was easier in prison than on the outside. When I was in prison for all that time, doing searching, you know, researching on myself and trying to fix myself, I uh, got my physical, my mental, and my spiritual all healthy. So I felt whole. Michael doesn't look like a man that spent most of his life in prison. He looks decades younger than his age. Maybe because he spent years reading, becoming more spiritual, going to therapy. Eventually, he became a mentor to other lifers. He says the hard part was coming home and hanging on to those changes, especially when those around him haven't changed that much. People would think that prison is evil, evil space. Out here is the evil, you know? I'm saying people are just so out of touch with their humanity, you know? Three years after getting out of prison, Michael's still looking for a job. He's created a routine for himself, taking classes at a trade school, riding the bus, doing errands. But sometimes, prison still finds him. It's just me against the world. Like a war veteran, triggers can come randomly and unexpectedly. Like when he was sound asleep next to his girlfriend. She was watching TV when the old Tupac song, Me Against the World, came on. It's a song about how he sees himself and how the world sees him as a thug. And it jolted Michael awake. Can you picture my prophecy? Stress in the city, the cops are top of me. The project is full of bullets, the bodies is dropping. Ain't no stopping me. Constantly moving while making millions. Witnessing killers, leaving dead bodies. She said I was fighting in my sleep and I was grunting and I was making a lot of noises. Then she woke me up. All I remember when I woke up, I just felt this intense, like I got, you know, like I was in a war or in a battle. I've been in two uh, riots on the yard, right, where that song was playing. And, you know, and that's all you hear is quiet. And then the riot jumps off. So it's like those prison riots had their own theme song. They're usually between warring black and Latino gangs. So walking the streets of L.A. can be a trigger, too. It's not like a stereotype or a judgment or whatever. But sometimes if I see two or three Mexicans together, it'll trigger, like, oh, watch them, I gotta watch them. These flashpoints can pop up at any time. Michael remembers that even last Christmas, when he was relieved and glad to be with his mom, he was suddenly squeezed with pain about the fact that he killed a man. When my mother was telling me how grateful she is to have me home, I'd be happy for her, 
But at the same time, I just think that uh, the mother of the victim and the rest of his family won't have the opportunity. As he waits for the bus in downtown LA, Michael tells me about a dream he has that's slowly taking shape. He's working towards getting a community planning and economic development certificate from a trade school. That will help him get city approval to open a halfway house. He'll rely on former inmates to staff it. And he wants to dream big. Condos would be perfect. Who wouldn't want to go from prison to a condo, you know? This dream, after nearly three decades in prison, seems like something he can almost touch. Michael's California dream is life after a life sentence. For The California Report, I'm Alexandria Mason in Los Angeles. That story is part of a collaboration with the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Working with us here on the California Report magazine, students spent a semester examining what the California dream means to people across Los Angeles. We'll be bringing you more of those stories in the coming weeks. We've been getting some really great responses from listeners for a new series we're calling Letters to My California Dreamer. We're asking you to write a short letter to one of the first people in your family who came to the Golden State with a dream. What was their California dream? What happened to it? And is that California dream still alive for you? Last week, I shared my letter to my parents. This week, a letter to grandparents. It comes from Sarah Strowey a second-generation San Francisco native. To my grandparents, all of them, I don't know if you had a California dream, but I know you dreamt of a place where dreams were safe to grow. All my grandparents immigrated from Europe after World War II to South America, fleeing the discrimination they faced as Jews. They settled in countries where they could get visas and start new lives in industries they had never known, learning a new language, climate, and culture, and constantly striving for more, or at least different. They made their way to California, and they took opportunities that were presented. One grandfather worked as a tailor in San Francisco, eventually opening an art gallery. My other grandfather re-completed his medical training and opened a doctor's office in south-central Los Angeles. They raised their children to both appreciate their roots and absorb their new homes. When my parents met, they were brought together in part by their similarities, grounded in history that was shared and known. I was raised in a Jewish household with a blend of cultural particularities, salsa and our matzo ball soup at Passover Seder, a mixture of Spanish and Yiddish peppering family conversation, an entire avocado as an after-school snack. I feel California in my blood and in my bones. I work for the city of San Francisco, and I am proud every day to serve some of the most vulnerable Californians as a social worker in a county hospital. My California dream is a California that embraces its history as a safe haven for immigrants, that loves and celebrates difference, and takes pride in the ever-changing and mixing landscape of Californians. Love, Sarah. Sarah Strowey's letter to her grandparents. We'd love to hear your letter to one of your family's California dreamers. 
Maybe it was a parent, a sibling, a great great grandparent. Maybe even you were the first in your family to come to California with a dream. We've got a really easy form on our website, so take a few minutes to tell us your story, and we might ask you to record it on air for our show. Check it out, CaliforniaReport.org. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Sonia Hudson. Our producer is Susie Racho. And our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Special thanks this week to Sandy Tolan and Karen Lowe at USC and Marissa Ortega-Welch at KALW. Our team also includes David Marks, Nadine Sabai, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Have a great weekend. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Artist Works. Jazz players can learn from internationally recognized artists Martin Taylor, John Petitucci, Peter Erskine, and more at artistworks.com jazz. And the California Healthcare Foundation, helping low-income Californians get the health care they need on the web at chcf.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.